0: our collective future. On the Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub
1: Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor at large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Timothy Brooke, who's an historian at the University of British Columbia and a leading thinker and scholar on China, including, but hardly limited to, the Ming Dynasty between the 14th and 17th centuries. He's also the author of several articles and books, including his most recent, Great State China and the World, which is currently out in paperback. I'm grateful to speak to him about the book its key findings, and their relevance to the present and future of China. Tim, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Sean, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. As a young person, you were drawn to Chinese history, politics, and culture. I read somewhere that you first visited in 1974 and were essentially hooked. What drew you to the field? What caused you to dedicate so much of your professional life to studying China?
2: Well, I think with that decision, as with most decisions in one's life, you make them as they come along, and you're not really sure what you're doing. So I was at university, I was at the University of Toronto, an undergraduate, doing English literature and a range of other courses, and then I got interested in Zen philosophy, largely as a result of being in touch with other people who are interested in that sort of thing. This is the early 70s, Zen was very popular. But there was no course in Zen Buddhism at the University of Toronto in the early 70s. There was a course in Chinese Buddhism. So I took that course. And while the subject interested me, the professor, Leonard Priestley, was charismatic, brilliant, mm-hmm. delightful, so calm, so thoughtful, so engaged with his teaching. I was hooked. And as a result of that I thought all right I'll take some courses in Chinese philosophy and then I realized that if I took the courses on philosophy but had no idea what the words were saying that was kind of fruitless so I started taking first year Chinese I dropped after about 8 weeks it was too difficult I had other courses but the following summer the University of Toronto offered a an introductory Chinese language course so I signed up for that took it and really have never turn, turned back. I had a wonderful cohort of other students. I got interested in, in the language. It's so different from any European language. I love the calligraphy. And so as an undergraduate student, I just got drawn into Chinese culture and the questions it raised and then the questions that you could ask about it that were so different from the questions that I inherited as the, the, the child of a, of, a, of a Brit and a Canadian who was steeped in European culture, but knew very little about Asia.
1: I mentioned in my introduction, your latest book, Great State, China, and the World, which is widely regarded as a key contribution to the historiography of China. But we're having this conversation days after President Xi's election for a, th- a third term. Why is studying Chinese history important to understanding China's present?
2: I think it's essential in two different ways, and it depends who the audience is. It's essential for people outside China to have a knowledge of China that is just sort of the rote stuff you get in textbooks about the dynasties and so forth, but that's going to give you a more intimate sense of what it means to be Chinese and to have Chinese history behind you, giving you the questions and answers that you apply to your everyday life. So if you're Chinese, however, I also think knowing history is important because Chinese are being deprived of their history. Under the current rulership of Xi Jinping, there's a concerted attempt to impose a narrative in which China always has been on the side of the angels, chinese have always been united as chinese people with a common shared identity and they've been doing this for 5000 years as the um as the cliche goes when in fact chinese history is as fraught as as full of conflict as global as everyone else's history so so in a sense with great state i'm i'm trying to reach two audiences i'm not going to be able to reach the chinese audience very well because uh, a couple of Chinese publishers approached me and then they quickly realized, whoa, that's not a book that's going to pass the censors. It's coming out in um, Chinese, however, on Taiwan at the end of January. So I will get a Chinese readership. I'll, I'll be interested to see what they say. But really what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to reach interested, informed people in the West. And I'm trying to tell stories that don't require you to know anything about Chinese history. Just enter the situations that I present. Meet the people I talk about. Think about the things they think about as a way to sort of try and bring you into into China. Now, if I can go on just a little bit more in relationship to Xi Jinping's third election, it's that Chinese history, I think, helps us to understand what's going on and what's been going on over the last two centuries, as as, uh, listeners will no doubt know, there was an important turning point in 1840 when Britain launched a war against China in order to open it up for trade purposes, the Opium War. And Chinese history since then has been written as a history of victimization at the hands of the West. There is an element of that in the last two centuries of Chinese history. But China itself is an empire. You don't grow to be, what, the fourth largest country in the world. No country grows that big without absorbing, conquering, taking over parts of the world that were not part of the original experiment or culture that was China. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is walk this fine line between China as having been imposed upon by external forces and China as in turn imposing upon the world around it I'm trying to find a balance between if you like China as a victim and China as a as a conqueror and and it's a bit of a challenge but um, we'll, we'll we'll see what we'll see how how what the readership thinks it's just come out in paperback so I'm hopeful to read a large that to reach a larger readership.
1: Uh, That's just a a brilliant answer, Tim, and and so many different strings I I'm I'm keen to pull on. Let's stick on the prospective Chinese reader for now. Um, As you mentioned, Chinese history is is complicated in China. There's only been a, a recent reckoning, for instance, of the role of Chinese nationalists in modern China's conception. How much of your history would be familiar to the average Chinese person, and what parts of it may be controversial? if tested against the country's myths and narratives?
2: Most of it will be familiar, although the stories I tell are all slightly eccentric. So, for example, I deal with the Japanese occupation of China during World War II through the trial of a collaborator and the lawyer who defended him after the war was over. And it's my way of saying, okay, the war, once the war was over, What was at stake? And at stake was how you were gonna construct the memory of that war. Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? What side are we on? And how do we use that to demonize people we don't like? Um, But So overall, Chinese are gonna recognize that I talk about the Yuan Dynasty, the Ming Dynasty, the Qing Dynasty, the Republic. I just briefly touch on the People's Republic at the end of the book. But I think they're gonna be completely surprised by the stories I tell. And the most surprising thing in the book, and it's um, it's even a, really a challenge for my colleagues, for other Chinese historians to completely take on board. I'm just trying to suggest that rather than think of the last 2,000 years of Chinese history as the history of the Chinese Empire, founded in 221 B.C. and then collapsing in 1911, I'm arguing that in the middle of that period, a little past the middle, in the 13th century, When the Mongols occupied China, Chinese history was fundamentally ruptured. So that it's not just one damn dynasty after another repeating what the previous dynasties did. When the Mongols come in, they change the political order in a fundamental way. The Chinese emperor was always understood to be the son of heaven, a kind of, and the only person who could ritually approach heaven. So he was endowed with a certain amount of. Institutional charisma. But when the Mongols come in, they really change that model. And the person who changed the model is Genghis Khan. Now, it's Genghis Khan's grandson, Kublai, who conquers China. But Genghis Khan, early in the 13th century, really reconceptualized what it meant to be the ruler of the Mongols. His first step was unifying the Mongols under his rule. And then he declared that his reign was, or his the sovereignty he could exercise was potentially infinite. So he started expanding, he expanded into East Turkestan, he expanded into Tibet, he expanded, well, his grandson expanded into China, they expanded as far as Hungary and Poland, and they understood that to be a great Khan was to have the authority of heaven to rule the world. The model in Mongol is called the Ik-Ulus. Ulus Ulus means country, Ik means large or great. And so this concept of the Ik-Ulus, which I translate as the great state, this becomes the model for rulers. And it's a model that the Mongols are kicked out after a century, Chinese take over power, the Ming Dynasty starts. But the founding Ming emperor was completely absorbed with this idea of being a great Khan. For him, Kublai was the greatest ruler in history, and he modeled himself on that. Now that model begins to weaken during the Ming, and then the Qing arrived, the Manchus arrived, they invade China in 1644, and they sort of re the great state, reinvoked the status of the great Khan, they sort of do it tenfold, um, and over the course of the 17th and 18th centuries, they expand across most of your uh, of the Asian portion of Eurasia, and become these nor- they conquer enormous territories. When China falls apart in 1911, the Chinese who pick up the pieces inherit this this empire, and which and because the word empire is so loaded with. The, Politics and it's a European term. I prefer to use the term "great state." So, China in 1911 inherits this great state, and they decide, well, we're not going to we're not going to break it up and just take the Chinese portion. We're keeping the whole thing, and this is important. I mean, this sounds a bit academic, but this is really important because I would argue that aside from a few self imposed. Um, famines, and institutional cockups since 1949, most of China's problems derive from the fact that it has inherited this great state. So they've had problems with the Mongols, problems with the Uyghurs, problems with the Tibetans. They've had problems on every border, problems with Russia, problems with India, recurring problems with India that they can't seem to solve, problems with Vietnam. And the border that is creates so much trouble for them is the border that was put into place by the great state. So um, for most Chinese, to even to raise this idea of great state is completely puzzling. It's not it's it's not a concept that means anything to them. It's not a concept they've heard about. But if you go back and look carefully at the history of all of this, you realize that the world changed fundamentally. The Chinese world changed fundamentally. And I think, as long as that's not acknowledged, Chinese just think, oh well, we've ruled the Uyghurs since time immemorial, we've ruled Tibet since time immemorial. All those nations in Southeast Asia that are competing with us over the South China Sea have no right to do that because we are, well, because we are China, but I would rephrase that because we are the great state and they should defer to our power. Now, I don't want to offer this as, a, as an attack on China. What I'm trying to do is introduce some historical knowledge that will help both Chinese and non-Chinese have some kind of a grasp on what is going on at the moment. Now, the Communist Party tried to break this sort of political style by imposing term limits on their leaders, but Xi Jinping has decided No time limits on me. And in fact, there are no time limits on a great Khan. The great Khan rules until he dies or is or is assassinated. And that's the course Xi Jinping has taken. Xi Jinping has no idea that this comes to him from the Mongols. And to be fair enough, I mean, you you only need to look at Putin and Russia you could look at trump in the united states you could you could look at at any number of world rulers at the moment who would like the idea of being permanent rulers but i would say also that putin's idea of being the lifelong ruler of china comes to him as well from this great state because russia was a a break off from the mongol greats in the 14th century
1: you talked there tim about the geographic and political expressions of this great state inheritance and some of the challenges that it has posed for China over the years. Um, to, To what extent, though, does it also capture something of the country's expansionary ambitions? How much of President Xi's current vision should be understood as a modern expression of this historical impulse? In other words, how much does this history motivate him?
2: Well, Sean, I think you've come to the crux of the issue here. It motivates him a great deal. Now, Chinese like to tell each other that China has never invaded another country, which is raving nonsense. But it's one of those, every country has these sort of precious things that they they like to think about themselves and that's one thing chinese like and in fact as i as i suggested earlier china has only grown through a process of invasion and incorporation now i think under earlier communist rulers there was um there was a sense that they will defend their borders as those borders existed in 1949 but that they will not seek to project power too much outside those borders now I mean, even as I say that, I begin to think of exceptions. Uh, Chairman Mao Zedong was interested in supporting communist movements in the third world. This wasn't explicitly in order to establish Chinese supremacy over those areas, but you could argue that there is a certain kind of Chinese interest behind what Mao is doing by supporting them. In Xi Jinping's case, the power that China is exerting to control other countries is really quite extraordinary. It's not what the Mongols, I mean the Mongols would have gotten their horses and ridden off and, and taken taken control of an area. China isn't quite doing that. China's doing it differently through, through a debt diplomacy. And, and this was a this was a tactic that Britain used in the 19th century, that the United States used in the 20th century, the Soviet Union as well, when it was still the Soviet Union. You set up trading relationships that create debt, and that debt then allows you to control local politics in whatever place you happen to be involved in. Well, China has been doing this consistently now for the last 10 years, extending huge loans, infrastructural loans, that when the country receiving it can't pay it off, they write off, and then they extend another loan. So through debt dependency, they are creating... These pockets of dependency on China and from South America all the way around the Indian Ocean to countries in Eastern Europe. So it's, it's not the, this is, this is not quite the great state as the Mongols invented it, but there is a sense of, and maybe it's a conflation here. It's both the great state idea combined with the kind of 19th century great power notion that if you can do something, you go ahead and do it. You act unilaterally, and you pursue the needs and desires of your state before you take account of the needs of the regions into which you are going. So, China is in a, a in a disturbingly expansionary mood at the moment, and it's got everyone on every border around China, anxious about what the future holds.
0: You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation courtesy of the hub again you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now free of charge at www.thehub.ca
1: now back to our program you you raised in a previous answer the subject of historical grievance it's something i want to take up now One thing that struck me both about your book and some of your accompanying commentary is the role that historical grievances played in Chinese nationalism, which in turn has provided something of a permission structure to President Xi's crackdowns and illiberalism, a sense that an effect that foreign invasion interference has stood in the way, as you say, of Chinese greatness. What are some of the key sources of grievance in China's national history or national story? The
2: chief source of grievance are the Opium Wars in the 1840s and 1850s. And this is when Britain pushed its way in, forced China to allow it to establish, eventually establish an embassy in China, establish consular officials, allow its uh, traders to come in and trade with relatively, relatively little interference in trade. And that's that's how the grievance story, the grievance story is rooted in that story. And it's it's um it's very much a retrospective story because China in the in the 1840s, they just come, well, in the 1840s, they'd come through a, a bad period of environmental collapse, though so temperatures got very cold in the 19th century. By the 1840s and 1850s, there's a huge internal rebellion that the government has to suppress. they are not really in a very strong position to negotiate with outsiders who are trying to push their way in. In the 1870s and the 1880s, China begins to rebuild itself and often trying to use the technology and the ideas coming in from the West, or to marry those, those ideas with Chinese ideas and try and rebuild China. Japan was very successful in this process, and China was coming along quite nicely, but in a sense, J- Japan overtook China, so that when China and Japan came to conflict in 1894, Japan won, and this was a deep humiliation, and this would th- then be repeated in World War II when Japan invades China the atrocities that Japan committed during World War II in China are, uh, it's, it's a shocking record. And I think China, Chinese have every reason to remember those atrocities and feel that they were not adequately recognized and compensated for. On the other hand, when Chinese tell this story of grievance, they don't much refer to Japan. And it seems to me, there's a kind of interesting displacement that's gone on here. Somehow it's safer to blame Britain and France and Germany because it's a long way in the past and it has no immediate consequences. It's just this kind of sense of grievance that you can tell. China's greatest economic competitor at the moment is the United States. Japan is not is is close behind. I would say on Japan's part, that they have apologized. Perhaps uh, compensations should have been more than they were, but that got compensated by the, the, by the Communist Revolution. And the grievance story was starting to thin out, I would say, in the 1980s. And then in the ni- early 1990s, it came back with a vengeance, post Tiananmen. Tiananmen in 1989 really knocked China's reputation badly. And One of the ways in which it started to try and rebuild that reputation was to link with Chinese communities overseas and start telling the grievance story again. So the Chinese overseas then became activists in saying China has suffered at the hands of the West and so forth. That story then started to fade out again in the 2000s, but in the 2010s, it's come back because, um, as as you point out, Sean, um, it gives Xi Jinping kind of carte blanche to do what he wants because he is writing the grievances, writing the wrongs in some sense that China has suffered. Now, the problem with grievance stories, well, grievance stories, everybody loves to feel sorry for themselves, but the problem with the grievance story is that it's usually an incomplete account of the past. China has had great successes over the last two centuries. China has industrialized China has inserted itself into supply chains worldwide. China has amassed the largest holding of foreign currency of any country in the world. So in another sense, China has been very successful. And there was perhaps some hope on the part of many people, Chinese included, that as China kind of righted itself in the early 2000s, it would move forward and become a full and uncomplaining member of the global community now i say global community of course it's 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 the big countries that get to call all the shots but but no china china was doing well but but under xi jinping he's decided to go back to grievance go back to this sense that china is owed something he will not stand down any conflict anywhere at the point that china can get what it, it wants and so the way I put it in my book is that China in the last few years has gone from great state in the Asian tradition to great power in the 19th century. It's now sees itself as a great power. Of course, it's facing off against Russia and the United States, and they too, to some extent, see themselves as great powers. So you can't blame the Chinese entirely for this, but it, um, it lends an edge and a tension that I don't think in the long run will serve China's
1: interest. I want to shift for the remainder of our conversation to some of the contemporary implications of your historical analysis. But I'd be remiss if I didn't raise one of the most fascinating findings in the book, which is that you make the case based on historical evidence that, like the coronavirus, China may have been the underlying source of the bubonic plague centuries ago. Do you want to talk a bit about the evidence that you brought to bear to reach that conclusion? And what, if any, implications there may be?
2: Well, I'm, I'm going to revise your comment a little bit, because the point I make in the book is that the Great Plague, when it arrives from Europe, arrives from the Western zone of the Mongol Empire, the Mongol Great State. So in fact, um, and I've, been, I, I've, I've had to learn to read science, scientific articles in order to pull this off, which has been an interesting experience. <laughs> Scientists and historians write very differently. But I'm fairly confident that Kyrgyzstan was the initial reservoir of the strains of the plague that infected Europe, and they infected Europe because they were traveling along Mongol trade routes and also traveling with Mongol armies. Armies are a problem. Armies cause destruction wherever they go, but they also cause ecological destruction, and that sometimes favors certain pathogens. And so uh, the bubonic plague survived in marmot and rat populations, and the disturbances that the Mongol armies created in the landscapes they crossed tended to exacerbate the problem of of the plague pathogen or. It, it strengthened the possibility of the plague pathogen growing in those rodent populations and then also traveling with human populations. So um, the the theory was originally put forward oh, some decades ago that China was the source of the plague. And this was all part of... The old story of demonizing China as the sick man of Asia and so forth. In fact, in fact, it comes from Kyrgyzstan. And the the inter- my interest, what's interesting about those findings is that China suffered the plague the way, to the extent that Europe did as well. And for the history of the plague that you can write about Europe, you can write much the same history about China. So China suffered in the Great Plague, and I use this story because one of the themes of the book. Is that China and the world have always been interconnected? Mm. Chinese often like to tell the story of China kind of being closing its borders behind the Great Wall, sufficient unto itself, doesn't need to involve itself with the rest of the world. But China's been involved with the world all the time. And so I use the, the, the movement of the plague pathogen around your Asia as a way of saying, no, China is not cut off from the rest of the world. China is part of that world. And what happens in China affects Europe and what happens in Europe affects
1: China. We've been talking so far about your masterful history of China. I want to shift a bit to China's own conception of history and how that may relate to its current political economy. The Chinese regime is still known as the Communist Party, even though China has come to reconcile itself to something like capitalism. A previous Hub Dialogue guest said that the Chinese model is rooted in part um, by its historic understanding of the collapse of the Soviet Union. The Chinese government has sought, according to this line of thinking, to introduce market reform without undermining its non-democratic structure and political system. I guess two-part question. One, do you agree? And if so, how much should we understand contemporary Chinese domestic and geopolitical actions as an historic interpretation of how to avoid the fate of the Soviet Union?
2: Well, I think your, your previous guest has a good point to make. The collapse of the, well, the Soviet Union has always been ahead of China in terms of its internal reforms. And the, the collapse of the Soviet Union was a wake-up call to Chinese that they should not reform the Communist Party's control of the country. At the same time, however, China may be the most marketized and most capitalistic country in the world. Whether you call it socialism, well, that's just a, that's just a nice word. I mean, it, it really is state. It, it's a state-directed capitalism in which a tiny oligarchy controls most of the financial and physical resources of the country. We usually talk about Russia in terms of an oligarchy. I think partly because Russian oligarchs have got themselves a bad name by 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 being active in dubious ways around the world. Um, the Chinese oligarchy is much more subtle, but I think if you were to take the members of the Central Committee of the of the Chinese Communist Party and look at their families, they are the oligarchy that is protecting its power by keeping close party control over the country, but that rhetoric of socialism, of socialism saved China and the Communist Party was the force that saved China from collapse, that rhetoric has been so powerful that most Chinese can't imagine their way around it. China is probably less socialist than Canada, if you were to look at social programs, social welfare. The, the ability of citizens to interact with the state, and China is really a free for all for those with capital. But while, while there was some loosening of direct party control through the 2000s, in the 2010s, that's been reversed. And Xi Jinping realizes that for him and his cohort to stay in power, they need they need an infrastructure of cadres who will make sure that their orders are carried out and understood right down at the lowest neighborhood level. So the Chinese Communist Party is alive and well, and if you want to get ahead, if you want to get into law school, if you want to open a drugstore, if you want to do anything, you have to join the Communist Party. It's, it's, it would be foolish not to do so, because if you don't join the party, you will be seen as resisting control of the party. If you do control the party, then you get access to permits, to personnel networks, to tax breaks. So I don't want to sound as cynical as perhaps this is sounding, but the, the Communist Party has a good thing going. It has an, an enormous surveillance apparatus in operation. The movements of every Chinese is being watched to, to a level that we can't even begin to, to imagine. And as long as everyone's being watched, anyone who steps out of line can be silenced and the people at the top can continue to google.
1: Let, let me stay on the topic of political economy. China's economic model, as you said earlier, Tim, has produced tremendous economic gains by mostly copying technology and industrial processes from the Western world. It has you know, effectively caught up by becoming a major manufacturing nation. There's a view that that model has maxed out and that the test will be if the Chinese model of, of state-directed capitalism will be able to compete with the liberal capitalist model in innovation and technology. What, what's your take? Is the Chinese model capable of that kind of transition?
2: Well, this is an interesting problem. China, yes, has kind of maxed out its... What it's learned from the West, one of the arrangements in the early joint enterprises between China and foreign countries was that China should have access to all the technology. And it then, I would think it's fair to say, denied any kind of copyright recognition and absorbed that technology and put it to its own use. But China is now starting to reach the point at which its population is aging. The poorer rural surplus labor force that drove China's economic expansion over the 20, last twenty years is starting to dwindle, and how China is going to resolve this is 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 a puzzle. I'm not an economist, so I, I'm I'm not very good at. At predicting any of this. But what China's gonna need two things. It's gonna need it's gonna to need to continue to have cheap labor because that's how it's been able to, to insert itself into supply chains around the world. Western companies face, you know, labor and environmental constraints, which which for the most part serve the interests of Western countries quite well. And so Western countries just then go off to China and have it done there because they don't have the same labor and environmental regulations. So China's got this problem of a dwindling supply of cheap labor. And as you point out, there is then the question of where is technology going? Technology is constantly evolving at a, at a rapid rate. Chinese engineers and computer scientists are among the best in the world, but they work within a system in which sort of, I don't want to romanticize this, but the, the kind of individual initiative that often leads to breakthroughs in technologies that are sort of blocked, this is less likely to happen. We shouldn't say China can't adapt to this, but China does face these two problems going into the future so that the prices of Chinese goods are going to rise. And in fact, although we all tend to blame COVID for the current price rises, part of those price rises, I think, are tied to the to the increasing cost of producing things within the Chinese economy. Those chickens are coming home to roost, as it were, and uh, we're now starting to pay for the real cost of things, whereas in the, well, through the last 20, 30 years, we've lived under this sort of cushion of Chinese cheap labor that has allowed us to consume at an absurd rate. So there are going to be many problems to sort out, and I guess the the hope of a historian is that if we can look back and think about history as shaped how history has shaped the present, we can all sort of come up to, come into conversation with each other about what are the reasonable solutions to the problems we face. Now, China's been um, attempted to make big inroads into environmental degradation, but the fact is couple of months every year, the Yellow River, which runs through North China, simply runs dry. There's no water going into the ocean at the end of the river. And this is a problem that that is not soluble within the industrial system that we currently operate. And, until it be, and unless it becomes so, China is going to face the constraints that everyone else in this game is facing.
1: Let me ask a, a penultimate question, which picks up on, on some of your, your your comments. There's been a lot of thinking and writing in recent years about whether China can ultimately compete with the West in general, and the US in particular, to become the dominant economic and geopolitical force in the world. If you were creating a pros and cons table, you could probably fill out both sides. But what's interesting is, as you as you just outlined, One finds a growing pessimism about China in a lot of Western commentary. Its COVID-19 response, aging demographics, etc., may mean that it maxes out before it finds itself in a position of global dominance. What's your sense, Tim? Are you long or short China?
2: Well, uh, one of the basic tools of the historian is the recognition that events can derail what seems to be going in a certain direction and send it in another. So it's very difficult for me to say. I would say China faces several problems. We've discussed already some of the economic problems. I've touched briefly on environmental problems. But there is also a political problem that as the country gets wealthier, as the middle class reaches... A population of a billion, the ability, the, the narrowness of the political control of the system, is going to chafe people. It's going to. Uh, there's going to be an increasing sense of the need to open up the political process. And she has been very good at sort of getting Chinese to focus on on their history and what they have now. But I would say that in the long run, that and environmental constraints are going to threaten the Chinese system. It's, and it's inevitable. Um, a century, if we were having this con- conversation a century from now, I suspect there would be no People's Republic of China. There will be something else, who knows what it is. Who knows what the world will look like a century now. But I think that um, the, the intensity of, con- you, you control something with this kind of intensity, there's going to be a break somewhere. There's going to be, there's going to be a rupture. And um, Jinping's rulership appears to be secure, but I think may be creating the conditions for its own collapse.
1: And that brings me to my final question. We've had uh, former Canadian ambassador to China, David Maruni, on the podcast before, and he argues that there's a lack of Chinese competency in Canadian business, government, and politics. Again, a two-part question. Would you agree with his assessment? And if so, besides reading your book, what, if anything, can be done to address it?
2: Well, this is an interesting issue. It's become difficult for me to reflect on what Chinese know or understand about Canada when, after the, the two Michaels were seized as hostages and held for two years and finally released last year. I'm afraid that put me in a rather a rather sour mood, and it put a lot of Canadians in a sour mood, and I um, think it showed the extent to which China did not understand how to win friends and influence enemies, or whatever that expression is, doing this. Taking citizens of another country hostage in order to solve a diplomatic or a business problem is not is not a way to go and with that i think the xi jinping regime showed itself to be insensitive to the way in which the world order or some members of the world order think the world order should work so china has really closed itself not just for covid but for the leading the, the years leading up to it before then chinese i visited china chinese scholars were coming out into the world but the government really has used code as a way of disrupting the open communication between, in this case, Canadians and Chinese. There is almost no conversation going between the two. Occasionally we get together on a, on some kind of Zoom platform for a conference. But there is really no candid exchange of ideas because those conferences are being watched very carefully by the Chinese security apparatus. So the loss for China is that it's not going to keep up with what's going on in the world. or it's going to listen to its um, those it trusts out around the world. And those it trusts are by and large overseas Chinese who stand to benefit by maintaining good relations, good political relations with the People's Republic of China. And, and so it's closing, it's closing, is closing in on itself in a way that is not good for China, not good for the world. And there is no sign that that's going to change over the next five years with Xi Jinping continuing his control of the Communist Party. And I worry about that. And, and in fact, that was one of the problems in the 19th century, one of China's failures to respond effectively to the arrival of European capitalism was its the limited amount of knowledge it had about what was going on in the world. Same, You could say the same thing in the 17th century, when Europeans first started arriving, and Japanese started arriving in China, and Chinese didn't have the knowledge base to be able to respond to the new things that were happening around the world. So I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that China is closing in on itself and becoming the kind of hermit kingdom that it likes to think it always has been for 5,000 years and, and that my book argues has not been the case.
1: That book is Great State, China and the World. University of British Columbia historian Tim Brook, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your audio online and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.